Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and today I'm pleased to welcome Susan Greenbaum. Susan is the author of Blaming the Poor, the Long Shadow of the Moynihan Report on Cruel Images About Poverty, uh, and that was published in 2015 by Rutgers University Press. Susan, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Um, so before we talk about blaming the poor itself, I wonder if you might talk just a little bit uh, about your own intellectual biography, maybe the kinds of questions that you've historically been interested in, and then perhaps how you arrived at this particular subject. Uh, I I don't know how far back to go. But <laughs> I, I grew up in a white bread suburb in Kansas City, Kansas, but... I had always had an interest in social justice, and where that came from, I don't know. But one of the things that puzzled me from a very early age was uh, the way people who looked different were treated differently, mm-hmm. and the, the whole specter of racism. When I went to graduate school in anthropology, I was interested in these issues. And in anthropology, they encourage you to go outside of your own life and study something that's different. But I uh, decided to do my dissertation about six miles from where I graduated from high school because it was such a vastly different place. It was where the packing houses and the railheads came together and it was where immigrants and African Americans had been uh, in very interesting both uh, economic and social situations for a very long time. And I worked at the city planning department there. So I was encouraged to get to know the area. And it really did spark in me not only an interest in understanding where these disparities came from and understanding communities within my own society that were marginalized, but it also convinced me that anthropology had an important role to play in the study of of American society. So that's kind of where it got started. I, I worked on a variety of projects there. I worked for an Indian-owned uh, consulting company for about two years. Uh, Native American is what I mean. And I learned a lot about those issues. I did a lot of research on unrecognized tribes, which is the marginal side of, of Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And it just reinforced my belief that there was something just caustic and, and toxic and bad about the way uh, people fought of people across ethnic lines. And that was part of why I got involved in this. And then I started doing work in neighborhoods, and I encountered this horrible neoliberal meme about who caused what problems and what would be the best way to solve them. And that's really what led me to re- write the book. Terrific. So... Um... So your book places the Moynihan Report, and I'll ask you to to say in just a moment sort of what the Moynihan Report is uh, and a little bit about its history for folks who may not know. But you really do wind up placing the Moynihan Report at the center of poverty policy, at criminal justice policy, of housing policy, of education policy, and more. And maybe more than any account that I've I've read suggests that it's it's really a seminal, perhaps the seminal document, if we want to understand sort of post-1960s history of social policy and maybe even of culture, too. So, so I mean, I want to sort of dig into that and explore that a little bit. So I wonder if you could start just by telling our listeners a little bit about who Pat Moynihan was and what the Moynihan Report is. Okay, well, let me uh, say... Pat Moynihan is is a kind of an iconic public intellectual citizen, uh, and also he was a senator for a long time, and he was very well regarded on the left. He was very well respected in the middle, and he had a big following on the right. 
a very extraordinary figure in in our political life. Mm-hmm. Uh, before he was in the Senate, he was uh, in the Department of Labor. That's where he really started his career under the Kennedy administration. And during that period, he and, and several other scholars that were looking at urban issues and what were the sort of maladies that were produced causing these these bubbling up urban issues in the in the mid 60s and this is 1965 let me mm-hmm. put that in context um and he kind of took it upon himself and i mean this literally to write a a, a report out of the department of labor unbidden about why poverty was caused by uh single parenting in the african american community and it was an alternative perspective on what were the problems. It was an internalized sort of, this is the fault of your bad culture explanation, as opposed to this is the fault of our, our sort of racist history and ongoing discriminatory and, and exploitative behaviors problem. So it was contrary to his apparent ideology, but it actually was not that um, that far field. And he wrote this this report that was uh, based on census data and on some writing by other scholars that was either you know misrepresented or was uh, somewhat antiquated. At any rate, he was uh, his scholarship was wanting, but his message was welcome. And it was welcome because he Basically, it came right at the time that the Watts riot occurred. He had just finished the report. It had actually been uh, started up the chain of of vetting in the Department of Labor, and there had been some mention of it uh, without any attribution. But actually, he leaked it. Now, I think it was multiply leaked. But uh, it, it seems clear that he was involved in leaking that report at a very critical moment where, you know, we were having all of these successes in civil rights legislation, and there were all of these uh, points of, of uh, conflict in urban areas, and it seemed very incompatible somehow. And how do you explain that? What's wrong with these folks? They're getting what they want kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And Moynihan seemed to supply the explanation. They've been badly raised. Yep. It's, um, a, it's a cultural problem yeah. in the African-American community. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit of sort of a, a famous phrase that emerges out of, of the report uh, that, that he himself would later describe as ill-advised, but he talk about, talked about the tangle of pathology in African-American households? Mm-hmm. Yes. One of the things about Moynihan, he was he was more of a bard than he was a researcher, and he liked to use colorful language. And Tangle of Pathology was the the uh, the way he described this process that you you you're raising kids to be unemployable, you're raising kids to be uncivilized and violent and disrespectful to authority. Because these struggling single mothers without any fathers are trying to take on these problems and they can't even solve their own. Yeah. And that was basically the, the, uh, the formula. And the tangle of pathology started within the, this single family or single parent family, but it exploded out into the community and had gangs and the whole thing. So that was basically the the uh, meme that he was putting out there. And it was, like I say, it was very attractive. It was very attractive to conservatives because it uh, was reinforcing their racism. Yeah. And it was attractive to liberals because it suggested, well, all we have to do is fix up these families and everything will be okay. And so, to it's. I mean, I sort of want to trace the 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 effects both on academics and on policymakers moving forward. Um, but before we go there, can you talk just a little bit about sort of the the effects at that particular moment, maybe uh, on the Johnson administration, on Great Society War on Poverty programs, and then maybe we can move forward from there and see where we can find its influence in later years. 
Well, it's, it coincided with a discussion that had been ongoing in the OEO, the Office of Economic Opportunity, about how to address poverty. Should we use community organizing? Should we mobilize people to, to develop self-help and to develop more political uh, activity that can bring them into the mainstream and create a, a, a sort of socialist kind of approach to it? Or should we take a therapeutic approach and try to fix these people up one at a time and hope that we can civilize them and assimilate them into uh, the dominant culture? And so Moynihan's report was very heavily supportive of the latter view. And the latter view was prevailing anyway because what they were discovering was that uh, community organizing produced a lot of demands at the local level just demands for the most part, sometimes not, but certainly a rising tide of demands, and local politicians hated it. And that got back up up the chain, and so there was a lot of tension and a lot of pressure to go in that direction anyway. The other thing was that the war was cranking up. And it was siphoning off resources, and it was creating a, a diversion from the war on poverty, and both in terms of Johnson's own uh, situation, but also it, it, out there in society. There began to be these stirrings of anti-war and other kinds of, of discontent. So I think that's part of why it was uh, so popular. It was so popular in those quarters. I'll tell you, it was not popular among other scholars and uh, political uh, activists. It was there was a great backlash against, or a great outcry against his report. Yeah, I mean, one one of the things that I appreciate about the book is that you really do sort of walk through um, how poor the scholarship was that Moynihan engaged. I mean, it really does fall apart yeah. across almost every dimension rather easily and there and there were folks who were who were pointing that out at the time who were writing about it and they they seemed not to have been able to break through and you've also got um i've lost track of what year this now but you've got books like like carol stack's all our kin which offers a fundamentally different kind of portrait about what's actually going on in those low-income households but apart from maybe its influence in the academy stack doesn't seem to break through as well i mean do you have do you have any sense as to how we account for why that that this inaccurate unfounded empirically flawed account winds up dominating and carrying through well i think that's the real question that emerges because and and it it's not just a question for why it was popular at the time and why people were willing to say okay well yes uh, the the his scholarship is not good and this, this scissors measure makes no sense and all of these other things that have been said about it or that were said about it at the time were overcome by the 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 desirability of applying that argument. And I think that's 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 why it's so mysterious, because it really when I talk about what happened in the eighties, and I don't know if you're gonna go there, so maybe I don't wanna No, go ahead, go ahead. Yet, but, I absolutely want us well, to move forward. So that's as good as places any you know, to, to jump there, to. There are are uh, the the way in which the, the uh intellectual uh, uh response to the Moynihan report mirrored the politics of the time. And the politics at that time were still pretty leftist and still pretty, uh, there was a lot of, of energy in those kinds of, of arguments. But it was in the 70s and then in the 80s after there had been a very sort of uh, conservative turn in the politics that, uh, and, and let me go back a second. Mm-hmm. Moynihan's report was discredited at the time. It was considered to be, among scholars at least, not among politicians, to be not a, not a creditable work. But in the 80s, it was rediscovered. And it was rediscovered primarily by William Julius Wilson. He wasn't the only one, but he was certainly the premier flag bearer of Moynihan was was wronged and Moynihan was right and 
all of these long-haired leftists that uh, didn't like his results. Uh, they criticized his work, and they just didn't like what he had to say, and they they smeared him, and, and we need to resurrect this because the conservatives are using it, and they don't have any nuance in their arguments. And so uh, Wilson decided he would use it uh, with a little nuance. But uh, and Wilson's, you know, absolutely the most famous urban scholar probably in the country at this point. Um, and I think very undeservedly. Uh, I mean, he's done a lot of work. He's produced a lot of, of research. But I, uh, as I mentioned in the chapter, one of the uh, the sort of the scissors measure that Moynihan came up with, and it's a it's a cute. Title, but what it really suggested was that in the early 60s, welfare enrollments were going up. At the same time, black unemployment or black male unemployment was going down. In other words, there were more jobs, and women were. Uh, hang on a second, if you could. <laughs> we may cut this out, but no worries. Oh, oh, it's the post. She's just going to have to do something with that stuff, the postman. <laughs> um, I'll close the door. My dogs will stop bothering it. Now, where were we? Oh, on the scissors thing. Uh, yes, explaining the The scissors. idea was that, you know, black women were taking welfare when they didn't need to. They could find a good husband with a job. Yeah. And that was his contention was the tangle of pathology had taken hold. Yeah. And part of, I mean, now, part of, sort of what was, was the going thing on that there was... was the, the danger, right, of natural lineal societies, which he argued, again, a historical, literally was a legacy of slavery, right? So it was this huge, right. giant edifice that he thought was problematic. That, and he just thought that giving more welfare produced more dependency, and it, it gave people the option not to get married. Yeah. And what, uh, you know, and it was just a fallacious idea, and the measure itself was wrong, and it was easily discredited. Now, you know, in 2000 and something, and I think it was like 2009, uh, Wilson wrote about that measure, and he reproduced an argument that had been made by Alice O'Connor, who's a poverty researcher, saying uh, Moynihan thought he had sealed the deal with the uh, scissors measure, period. Now, he goes on to say, Wilson goes on to say, well, this shows that uh, there really was merit to this idea. Alice O'Connor goes on to say in the very next sentence, but the opposite was true. <laughs> I mean, it was just like a big knot, and it's left off. Now, there's nothing that you can say about that that resurrects it other than it was dishonest. And Robert Sampson, who is also an extremely well-regarded urban scholar, I mean, I've, I've read and used his stuff myself. And a student uh, of Wilson, is that right? I don't know. I don't think Sampson was a student okay. of Wilson. I think they're more contemporary, but I'm not sure about that. But they work together. Um, and Samson said in his introduction to the piece that William Ryan, who was the chief critic, he was the blaming the victim guy, uh, was a journalist. William Ryan was a Ph.D. psychologist in the College of Medicine at Harvard University. Now, it wasn't hard to figure that out, but he was basically downgrading Ryan ideas by uh, demoting his mm -hmm. credentials. And again, that just seems dishonest to me. And well, I mean, why, why such a great investment in, in those ideas being proven right? Well, I don't know. Unless there's just a lot more research dollars to be gotten that way. And I, that's a very crass thing to say. But I do think that this was a compromise that was made with the extreme right-wing turn that occurred under Reagan and that continued, continued, didn't really uh, have much abatement under Carter and was certainly uh, big under Reagan and, and uh, Bush and Clinton, Clinton. and Obama. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's an idea that's continued to have tremendous uh, influence. Yeah. And the reason I wrote this book has more to do with the experiences that I had out in the neighborhoods talking to people in nonprofits who were well-meaning people, are well-meaning people, but they just cannot and will not view poor people as having any, um, anything useful to say, any, any useful role to play in their own, um, in their own improvement. And that there's no sort of, it's all should be done one at a time. One family at a time, one kid at a time, one former addict at a time. That kind of approach, which puts the onus on the person and the blame on them, basically, for having been in the situation they've gotten in, is the dominant approach. And it's a safe one. And it's not making much progress yeah. on the say, problem. Say, say a little bit more about what you mean by that in describing that as the, as the safe approach. Well, it's the approach that doesn't get, it doesn't raise rancor among right-wing politicians. Everybody agrees that, you know, people should atone for their sins and they should learn how to, how to behave themselves. Yeah. And if they can do that, maybe they can be, uh, you know, restored to society. Mm-hmm. Um, and among the, the nonprofits, it's a very um, easy way to do your work. You don't have to worry about, um, well, it, it's, more, it's more appropriately, professionally, white-collarly, um, and, and paternalistically, um, it's, it's, a, it's an easier way to, uh, to do your work. Instead of trying to make partnerships with people and mobilize people and get yourself in trouble at City Hall, which the people who do that do. Uh, and there are people who do that. I mean, it's not the entire landscape of activists that are, are, are pursuing that. But the ones that have the most money are. The ones who have the most resources are. You know, they'll come in, they'll find a neighborhood that's got really bad statistics, and they'll write grants around the bad statistics to bring their programs in to uh, basically uh, give themselves jobs. Yep. Now, you know, they're, they're all, again, I think they're well-meaning, and I think that they think that they're helping. But, I mean, in this program in, in Tampa, the, the, the suits decided the biggest problem in the worst neighborhood in Tampa was childhood obesity. Now, this is a neighborhood where almost every kid that goes out on the sidewalk gets arrested for something. This is a neighborhood that had more foreclosures in the rental sector uh, than any other in the, in the, the county, when, and we were bad. This is a neighborhood that has poverty rates that are just soaring. And they think that the thing they ought to invest in is childhood obesity. And everybody had to dance to that tune. If you wanted money from them, you had to figure out how your program was going to mitigate childhood obesity. And then they had all of these things that they wanted the the locals to do as volunteers for free around churning up interest in childhood obesity and they were very disappointed that they didn't seem to want to do that. <laughs> and, you know, the whole program was conceived downtown, and it was not what people wanted. Another example was they did this thing called the, the walking sidewalk, where they, would, they were going to go in there and organize people to walk kids to school because they were not safe if they were walking by themselves. And what they failed to understand was that women in that neighborhood had already organized that program for themselves, you know, without any, any interference. And the guy whose job it was to organize the program was complaining to me because these people were there and they weren't somehow getting on his program hmm. rather than him getting on their program. <laughs> it was just like, uh, you want to fail at this? That'll be the way to do it. 
And that's exactly the kind of, of just ongoing inability to give humanity to people that you've somehow condemned as being lesser and that you're afraid of. That's the other thing. They were very scared of the people in the neighborhood, so they they were reluctant to have a lot of people come to meetings and stuff and leave things open. And they had a, a um, oh God, I hope nobody's listening. They had a, um, <laughs> a a barbecue for the neighborhood at one of these these facilities to you know encourage people to come and get to know what they had to offer. And nobody came, and they were just so disappointed. But they had put cops, two cops at the door. No, I mean, it's like you got to walk through this phalanx and, you know, worry about whether you have a warrant or, you know, anything. So these are the kinds of things that, that prompted me to go into this more, uh, more extensively. And the chapter on criminalization was really the, the, the thing that, um, propelled it or the, the the experiences I had around that issue because I just saw children being destroyed and there was no consciousness of that and there still isn't. Yeah. I just um, came from a, a, a panel this morning um, where they talked about incarceration and they talked about the criminalization and they talked about it. They never talked about policing or about race. So, um, so this is Stephen Pimper. I'm the host of the Public Policy Channel here at New Books Network, and we are speaking with Susan Greenbaum, who's the author of Blaming the Poor, The Long Shadow of the Moynihan Report on Cruel Images About Poverty. Um, Susan, so why don't we pick up right, right there, because it's, it's, um, you trace the, the, um, the policing practices and the mass incarceration policies of uh, the contemporary United States, you, you in fact do trace that back to lingering effects of the Moynihan Report. I wonder if you can sort of walk through how you see that evolution. How does, does that, uh, you know, arguably obscure document produced by the Department of Labor in 1965 wind up shaping criminal justice policy in the 1980s and 90s? Well, I think that you give Moynihan too much credit there. Okay. Uh, his friend uh, J.Q. Wilson was really, the, the, I think, more instrumental in that. But they were friends, and they were colleagues, and they, they ex- exchanged ideas. It was this tangle of pathology. The notion that there really was this, this, this root-deep pathology in these neighborhoods and that that's what, they, it was basically an occupation idea, that they had to control people and they had to call out the bad ones. And their definition of who the bad ones were was pretty vague. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had in, in the neighborhood where I worked, the police had a list of kids they considered to be the worst of the worst. You know, and there were a lot of them. And we knew a bunch of them. Now, if those were the worst kids in the neighborhood, we really didn't have much to worry about. (laughs) I mean, really, these were kids that were just trying to make out. And, you know, they were kids, so they weren't, like, always behaving themselves. But they certainly did not deserve to be tracked down, preyed upon, ticketed constantly, arrested, dragged in, hassled, uh, to the point where they just, you know, hated the police. Yeah. And, and sense I, that, was it their was it their was it their poverty or their race that you think made them most likely to be perceived as dangerous? It was both. Yeah. It was both. And it took both. Now, one of the things in Tampa, Tampa became famous recently for bike tickets. The Tampa Police Department has just written hundreds and hundreds of tickets to kids on bikes, mostly in that neighborhood and in another low-income black neighborhood. The white kids in neighborhoods who don't have helmets on when they ride bikes or who have uh, somebody riding on their handlebars or whose taillight is not... uh, in place, don't get those tickets. 
And it sucks money out of the pockets of poor families. And I think that's another dimension of this that needs to be understood. These are our uh, cash registers for the courts and the police. Mm-hmm. And so they're preying on these kids, I mean, literally, to make the numbers that they need to make in order to get the performance ratings they need to have, in order to pull in revenues that they, uh, and to show that they have activity. Right. I mean, what happens if you have a huge police force and the crime rate goes down? And that's what's happened. So they got to, you know, <laughs> these people want to do something, so they give kids tickets. Although, you know, it's, it's, I mean, you know, to, to, I'm not even sure devil's advocate is the right phrase, but I mean, I would imagine that, that most of uh, those, those agencies and those officers would argue uh, that they are, in fact, uh, focusing their attention where the greatest uh, disorder and disruption is, right? This is sort of the influence of, of the broken yeah. windows uh, piece that comes right. out of Wilson right. is, is that's, that that's they, would, they would argue that this is, is the most effective means of managing disordered and disorganized neighborhoods and communities. Well, that's been shown in research over and over again not to be the case. I mean, one of the arguments that's made about why the crime rate went down was that because we just went all out on policing. But James Q. Wilson himself, before he died, did an analysis of that and decided that the uh, effect of, of the uh, over-policing on the reduction in crime rates was 7% at most. And that this really is not about keeping people safe. There is a, uh, there's a whole, it, it's almost like a pre-crime formula where you go after crime where people are uh, already being arrested for these crimes. Mm-hmm. And it's a self-fulfilling process. And that's really what you're talking about. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't bad things going on in those neighborhoods, because there are. And the people who live in those neighborhoods are the people who are suffering the most from the property crimes and the crimes of violence that occur there. But the police are not deterring those. The police deal with the, the residents as they deal with the people they arrest. I mean, there's this a kind of a global distaste. There was a woman in this neighborhood that I'm talking about who started a crime watch on her own. And she and a bunch of her neighbors decided they would develop a crime watch. Mm -hmm. The police absolutely would not cooperate with her. And there was a woman who called the police because they were selling drugs on the corner. And the police come to her door They knock loudly on her door and they say, are you the person who called the police about drugs in the neighborhood? (laughs) Now, there's only one reason you would do that. And that's to get that person hurt. So, you know, there's a lot of of just vindictiveness. And you you think that's malice rather than, than simply profound ignorance? I think that there are individuals who are filled with malice. And there are other cops, and I've talked to a number of cops. I mean, so it's not like I'm, I'm avoiding the humanity of police because some of them really are just trying to do their jobs. But they're in a culture where you're trying to do your job and looking the other way when somebody else is doing bad on the job is part of the, what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the problem is this blue line. I mean, that's a, that's a, everybody knows that, but how do you deal with it? You know? And I still wonder about that. And the police are having community conversations in Tampa. There's having one today, (laughs) you know, like come and get to know your police and we'll, uh, we'll, and you know, I don't have anything against those kinds of things. And certainly when they're with people who are really willing to listen to the people rather than just try to cool them out then I can see where there's some good coming from that. But the idea that this is just a, a kind of a, a, a whole culture clash between the police and the community uh, way understates what's going on. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I want to talk a little bit about housing policy because it's, it's you devote uh, a fair bit of time right. there there as well to, to looking at sort of the uh, the signature programs uh, that carried through right up to the present, really thinking about sort of moving to opportunity programs and the HOPE 6 right. uh, programs. Can you talk just a little bit about what are those policy yeah. programs and uh, sort of how do you evaluate them? And again, if you can sort of link them back to, to Moynihan's influence uh, for folks listening. Yeah, Moynihan, the way it links to Moynihan's influence is the notion that you've got concentrated poverty and you put people together to, you know, poor people together make trouble with each other, and the, the solution is to scatter them out. Yeah. And this was the HOPE 6 pro- program, which was designed to demolish public housing projects and uh, rebuild lower-density mixed-income uh, projects on those sites and then relocate the the remainder of of the tenants into uh, private neighborhoods using vouchers. Mm -hmm. That was the plan. And it was based on the fact that many housing projects, this happened in the the mid-90s, early 90s, because George Bush was still president, the other George Bush. it was based on an assessment of the condition of housing projects, which was really abysmal. I mean, during the whole Reagan era, they just starved the projects of, of anything to, to renovate or to repair. And so there really were serious problems with living conditions in those areas. Now, when they went to tear them down, they didn't necessarily go to the worst ones. <laughs> they went to the ones, you know, like on the waterfront in Chicago and in places of that sort, uh, but not entirely. I mean, it was a sincere program that was designed to deal with what were regarded as social problems in public housing rather than address the, the structural and physical problems in, in public housing. And where the social problems were considered to be the most important is where the Moynihan Report comes in, because that really was feeding the assumption that these are people that don't know how to raise kids, they don't know how to be neighbors, they don't know how to be citizens, and they're they're contaminating each other, and what we need to do is re-socialize them by uh, displacement. And that has been going on, and virtually... All of the public housing projects in Tampa have now been torn down or they're slated to be torn down. And they're definitely going ahead with that program. What we found when we went and looked at where people were relocated and how they were doing in their new neighborhoods, the idea that they were being relocated into opportunity neighborhoods where the homeowners would mentor them to become more solid citizens and to see that, you know, they really ought to get a job or they should, you know, like not be so uh, slavishly uh, devoted to alcohol, whatever. Mm -hmm. That did not materialize, quite the opposite. The people in the neighborhoods where people were being resettled knew exactly where they were coming from, and the idea that the stigma of public housing would go away was just foolish. The stigma of public housing was replaced by the stigma of Section 8. And the people in these neighborhoods were, as it happened, justifiably concerned about what it was going to do to their housing values. Mm Because in the United States, housing values have always been tied to the demography of, of the, uh, the surrounding neighborhood. And so this was just, a, it was an incongenial mix, but it was very convenient to do. And so when we started publishing our results, the Housing Authority got furious. Housing Authority really does not like us us being my research team, and me in particular. Um, And the moving to opportunity that you mentioned was a large quasi-experimental program that was done in five major cities where people were given the option of moving 
out of public housing. And there was a pool that was created, and out of that pool, one-third went into low-income neighborhoods, one-third just stayed where they were, and one-third was given a voucher and said, go find a place to live. Mm -hmm. So the people who went into the low-income neighborhoods were supposed to thrive. They were being given a ticket to opportunity. And what they found sort of in successive years of, of evaluating that was very disappointing. The economic status of the families who moved did not improve. The educational success of the kids in the families that moved did not improve. And there were a lot of, uh, there were, were depression among females and there were uh, uh, problems with the police among males, of, you know, teenagers. Those were things that were being discovered. And it was kind of like, oh dear, um, we spent all those millions of dollars and dislocated all those people and it didn't work. Recently, it's been rehabilitated through the work of Raj Chetty, who is a uh, big data guy. And that's probably uh, something that people are familiar with. Um, The Chetty stuff is really quite, and and I can't go into it, and I'd have to have my stuff in front of me to to do it. But the the fallacy with Chetty, Chetty found this, that, well, yeah, the parents don't do better, and the older kids in the family don't do better. But younger kids, if you move the, a family from a low-income neighborhood to a high or to a, a, a low-poverty neighborhood when they're less than 13, then when they grow up, they'll earn more money and they'll have a better chance of going to college and they'll have a better chance of being married. And so that was the nugget of, of, uh, that, that rescued MTO, is that, well, here's something that, you know, if, if we move people out and their kids are young enough, uh, well, it won't help them, but it'll help the kids, and that's good. And then they do this math on how much money it's going to save society, which is, you know, really kind of ridiculous. And then when you drill down into the data, into the, the findings themselves, you discover that, Well, the difference between staying in public housing and going to a low-income neighborhood is the difference between 11,000 and change and 14,000 and change. Now, 14,000 and change is still below poverty. So we're going to go to all this trouble, and actually the older kids are going to do worse. And another study that was done by a a well-regarded psychologist named Kessler, Robert Kessler, I believe is his first name, he found that in the MTO low-income neighborhoods, actually the teenage boys and even those that had moved in when they were only eight years old were having elevated levels of PTSD and conduct disorder. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was a gendered thing in addition to being an age-dependent thing. And uh, Chetty doesn't cite Kessler. <laughs> it's like, and not only that, but Chetty's article has a co-author, Lawrence Katz, who was also on the Kessler article. So how do you not know then and ex- include it? I don't know. But just, there's a lot of, when you get into these kinds of policy research findings where you've got a great motivation to find something, you start to see things that aren't just right with the scholarship. Yeah. And, also it's, you know, and there's a big difference between statistical significance and substantive statistics. That's right. Uh, and, substantive. And, and and this is where I think, you know, sort of, of having more, you know, ethnographic work and more anthropological work might be useful here. I mean, this, this you know, makes me think very much of, of your discussions of, of Carol Stack and my own reading of Carol Stack and looking at uh, what happened in the wake of MTO and Hope Six programs and the destruction of what were often healthy, vibrant communities in those housing projects that to outsiders look like these horrific, dysfunctional nightmares. But if you actually spend time 
in those communities with those people, you realize that there are extraordinarily essential networks of mutual dependence that have been created over time. And then people swooping in with this notion that these are broken people and we must teach them how to behave properly winds up making their lives worse off in ways that, you know, for my money, too many of those folks are simply clueless about, right? It never occurred to them that these were, that these were healthy communities and good people doing their very best with scarce resources. And that that's my point exactly. There has been such a stigma placed on public housing in particular, but low-income black neighborhoods and cities in general yeah. that overlooks that. And because people are afraid of those areas, they don't know those areas. They don't yeah. go to those areas. They don't know people who live in those areas. And they're quite content to believe what they read in the newspaper. And I don't blame them, but yeah. they're wrong. And that is the ethnographic difference, because you actually get to know people. And when you get to know people, you get to realize that there is a great deal more that unifies us than divides us. And the other thing about social networks and social support systems is that poor neighborhoods and housing projects have much thicker social networks, much more efficacious social networks. Now, you know, there's still a lot of problems that go on there, but part of the the mitigation of those problems comes from the way people help each other and the way they necessarily get to know each other because they need to help each other. And in my neighborhood, I've lived in the same neighborhood for almost 30 years, and I know about four of my neighborhoods, to, my neighbors to say hello to, and right. we never do anything together. Right. Because your ability and to get through the day and get through the month is independent on those other people. Right, right. Yeah. I don't need them. Yeah. And uh, so I'm fine. But in the projects, you do need other people. You need other people to be able to give you a ride someplace. You need other people to watch your kids for a minute. You need other people to tell you what's going on. And, uh, you You need those informal economic networks of, of, you know, barbers and hair cutters and and car repairs people because you can't afford to go out into the formal economy for those kinds of services. So you got women who do nails yep. for their neighbors, and they pick up a little money, and their neighbors get their nails done in an affordable way, and everybody talks while they're doing it. Yep. So these are things that are simply not obvious in the kind of statistical profiles that they present as evidence that we need to tear these places down. And what if they had put the money that they spent tearing them down and dislocating people into actually fixing up the units, they would have had, um, you know, much better places to live. But it was an, I mean, that whole public housing thing has been a construction real estate scam from the first day it started. And the, the units are not, built properly, there are all kinds of corners that are cut, there's all kinds of maintenance that's deferred, and so, you know, it's hard to say, well, they should have fixed them up. I don't know what they should have done, but they shouldn't have done what they did. But it's also, this is how we wind up seeing, you know, sort of images of these, you know, absolutely horrific public housing projects, and you can see how the narrative of personal irresponsibility might take hold, not knowing that basic fact, right? These were built badly with shoddy materials that were destined to fail, and there was never sufficient material to maintain the physical infrastructure. Of course, it was going to collapse if you put people in it without resources on their own, but that's not a narrative that gets communicated to the public. So you look at this and you go, oh my God, how can those people live like that? What's wrong with them? Right, and and they must be the cause of all this blight that's so obvious. Yeah. When they have no control over it, whatever. When I first got to Tampa, there was a big housing project that I got to know, and there were these gigantic plantings that people had done. And, you know, Tampa, Florida is a good place to do plantings, mm-hmm. and it was kind of like they were competing with each other to make the most beautiful and large plants in front of their units. And it was really very nice. And then the housing authority decided that they were using too much water, so they shut off the water and they pulled out all the plants. 
And so there's just, you know, dirt. And that's the kind of, and it wasn't just because they were using water. They, the housing authority likes to pe- keep people in a kind of a depressed condition where they can control them better. Well, that's what I think anyway. And I have evidence for that <laughs> also in my book. Uh, so we've been talking with Susan Greenbaum. Susan's the author of Blaming the Poor, The Long Shadow of the Moynihan Report on Cruel Images About Poverty. Uh, and we are creeping up on the end of our time. So, Susan, I want to ask two questions as we look to conclude here. One, is there anything else sort of about the book um, that you want to make sure that that you share with us? And then second, if you could sort of talk a little bit about the things that are on your mind now and what you think might be next projects or or, or next pieces well i i'm i'm loath to promote the book i mean just because of self-promotion and being you know silly about that Blame me. Go ahead. It's, it's a fairly <laughs> short book it's easy read i believe it's a really good supplemental text and and if you're interested in the war on poverty and the way we got to where we are i think it gives a, a fairly good roadmap. The things that I'm doing now, I'm on the board of the Sociological Initiatives Foundation, which is a, is a foundation that gives small grants to community organizations that partner with academic researchers to solve social justice problems. Mm. And it's very contrary to the kinds of things that I've been talking about. It's a very equitable and a very... Um, It's mobilizing to change rather than fixing up people one at a time. It it takes a different approach. Uh, There are a number of examples of of, uh, organizations in in Boston, New York, and Texas, and California, and even some around here, uh, where that approach is being taken to the kinds of social problems that we're encountering every day. And I'm writing a book or I'm editing a book that looks at those, some of those projects and the alternative to uh, the neoliberal approach to uh, personal responsibility. Um, so that's what I'm working on now. I'm also I'm active in the League of Women Voters here in, in Tampa. Mm-hmm. And we have uh, the state has set up a juvenile justice committee that I am on, which is looking at ways that we can reform the juvenile justice system. It's just terrible here in Florida. They put more kids in solitary confinement. They put more kids in adult prisons and they arrest kids for the smallest of reasons and send them on the pipeline to prison. So what I'm hoping is that the league, with all of its respectable credentials and institutional clout, can help do some good in that area. So those are the two things I'm doing. I ended my book on a very woeful note, I'm afraid, <laughs> and I'm trying to <laughs> regain my optimism. Excellent. Uh, we look forward to that. I think we can all use a little more optimism. Uh, we've been speaking with Susan Greenbaum. Susan's the author of Blaming the Poor, The Long Shadow of the Moynihan Report on Cruel Images About Poverty, published in 2015 by Rutgers University Press. Uh, I'm Stephen Pimper, uh, host of the Public Policy Channel. Uh, thank you for joining us here at New, New Books Network. Uh, and thank you, Susan, for your time today. Well, and thank you for asking me. My pleasure. Take care.